0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner. All of us who call ourselves animal activists or animal advocates share a common concern, a concern for animals and the suffering caused by humans on animals. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, you're working in your own way to reduce animal suffering on this planet. Maybe you rescued your last dog or cat from a shelter or rescue organization, or perhaps you signed a petition to stop the cruel practice of seal hunting, or you made a conscious decision to try and remove meat products from your diet. Whether you realize it or not, if you took any one of these or countless other actions to help an animal or animals, you are part of the animal welfare movement. Have you ever wondered when the animal welfare and animal rights movements began, or what precipitated the existence of animal advocacy? Despite tremendous growth in animal advocacy throughout the years, this belief that animals exist for human use dates back tens of thousands of years. Like any belief system, it's deeply rooted in our history and culture and cannot be changed overnight. Eight to ten thousand years ago, people first began the practice of herding, significantly changing the relationship to humans. Humans began owning and confining animals such as sheep and goats for food. 2,000 years after that, people started owning cows. Domestication of animals for food was an essential element in the progress of human civilization. Millennia later, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's non-violence independence movement, proclaimed, "...the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated." But before Gandhi, Enlightenment-era philosophers offered their own formulations about animals in society. And I'll just touch upon a few of them here. We'll dive into this in a bit more detail in an upcoming show. Well-known philosophers Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes both theorized that animals did not have equal consideration with humans because animals lacked consciousness, reason, and autonomy. Kant and Descartes subscribe to what is known as indirect theories, theories that have at their basis the requirement that one should not harm animals, but only because doing so indirectly does harm to a human being's morality. 17th century philosopher Descartes, who is often referred to as the father of modern philosophy, believed animals could not reason and were incapable of feeling pain. They were akin to mechanical robots who were not deserving of compassion like humans. Emanuel Kant's work has been discussed throughout animal advocacy movements to this day. While he did not believe that humans had any ethical obligation to animals, he felt cruelty should be avoided simply because cruelty toward animals would lead to the development of cruel habits that humans would inflict on one another. Possibly the most animal-friendly viewpoint was that of the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. He believed the right action was that which minimized pain and suffering and maximized pleasure for everyone involved, referred to as utilitarianism. His philosophy applied to humans as well as non-human animals. As an example, a utilitarian might claim that the treatment of millions of experimental laboratory animals is okay if billions of people benefit from it by gaining better health. Given the recent visibility of animal rights issues in media and law, one might think the animal rights movement was new. However, 2,500 years ago and further back in history, there are recorded cases of respected people urging others to show compassion for animals. Since its earliest recordings, the animal rights movement has always been tied in with vegan living as a means of eliminating or minimizing cruelty to animals. The spiritual teachers of India, who rejected the herding culture, were the earliest animal activists that we know of today. They committed to minimizing cruelty by interfering with animals as little as possible and allowing them to live out their lives as natural beings. They taught and practiced a vegan lifestyle. The most prominent of these would be Mahavir, a significant teacher in the Jain tradition, and the Buddha, both of whom taught their students compassion through meatless living. Both Jainism, which is traditionally known as Jain Dharma, an ancient Indian religion, and Buddhism, which encompasses a variety of traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices, primarily based on original teachings of the Buddha, taught and practiced the teaching and understanding of Ahimsa, Ahimsa is a consciousness of non-violence. The essential belief is that violence toward any living beings is unethical and brings suffering to the victim, the perpetrator, and society. It's inspired by the premise that all living beings have the spark of the divine spiritual energy, and therefore to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. Ahimsa has been related to the belief that violence has karmic consequences. Both Jain and Buddhism practiced nonviolence. Adherents of these practices were not permitted to own animals or harm animals. The 1860s is when organized animal protection really began in America. Citizens launched independent non-profit societies for the protection of cruelty to animals, SPCAs. In several cities. However, unfortunately, after World War I, many of these initiatives lost momentum. Animal protection saw revival following World War II. Treatment and use of animals began to come under greater scrutiny. Ideas about what had always been regarded as humane treatment of animals started being challenged. Once again, attitudes about the relationship between humans and non-human animals began to change. In the mid to late 1940s, scientific institutions had turned to municipal shelters to get cheap dogs and cats for research. In fact, scientific institutions devoted effort to get animal procurement laws passed allowing them to gain access to animals from municipally owned shelters. These laws usually passed without difficulty. In the early 1950s, the animal rights movement took on one primary cause, the issue of pound seizure, which was rooted in existing animal shelter principles and policies. In pound seizure, dog and cats in shelters were sold or released for use in research. Animal advocates took issue with the increase in amounts of money spent on biomedical research, which in turn increased the demand of laboratory animals, many of which came from shelters. Most local Humane Society officials felt that forcing organizations to provide animals for research violated their mission and ethics. However, leaders within the American Humane Association tried to negotiate with the biomedical research community rather than outright oppose them. This was likely because some key management positions in the American Humane Association were also salaried staff executive positions, so there was some conflict of interest. Salaried executives had an interest in maintaining their jobs, which meant not making themselves controversial figures in the communities they served. This fueled anger among supporters of the American Humane Association and caused discord within the organization. Ultimately, the American Humane Association backed away from this issue altogether. In 1951, the Animal Welfare Institute was formed, and in 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was created. Interestingly, both of these organizations were formed by people who were formerly associated with the American Humane Association. The many social justice movements of the 1960s and 1970s paved the way for the evolution of the animal rights movement, which then developed into two different approaches to animal rights, the utilitarian way of thinking and the rights theory approach. The 1975 publication of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer's controversial book, Animal Liberation, again changed the conversation about human treatment of animals. It impacted what people ate, what they wore, and how humans perceived animals. Singer argued all creatures have a right to, quote, equal consideration because they can suffer. In the book, he writes about the cruel practices used in factory farming and the horrors perpetrated on animals used for laboratory testing. Speciesism is the term Singer used in his book to describe the exploitation of animals. It refers to an attitude of bias against a bean because of the species to which it belongs. He argues that it is discrimination no different from racism or sexism. Essentially, it allows humans to view animals as inferior, and in doing so, justifies regarding animals not as individuals, but as objects and means to fulfill our human desires. Many consider Singer's book the benchmark, or Bible, of the animal rights movement and the foundation upon which much of the movement's ideas are based. However, another branch of animal activists believe animal liberation's utilitarian viewpoint was too conservative. In 1983, philosopher Tom Reagan applied deontology, a branch of philosophy that explores moral duty to animals. In his view, any being that is a subject of a life is a being that has inherent value. Reagan's book, The Case for Animal Rights, took the position that animals possess intrinsic moral rights as individuals with complex feelings and experiences that extend beyond their ability to suffer. To this day, the book is still considered a classic of moral philosophy. With the 1990s came the Internet, which made it vastly easier for animal advocates to connect with one another, form groups, advocate, and network animals in shelters and rescue groups. Transport groups could easily connect shelter animals in one state with prospective loving homes in another. A cute video of a prancing baby goat at a small sanctuary could be viewed by millions worldwide. Anyone, anywhere, could join in and help the cause even from their own homes. However, as with every other change in society, it has come with a downside. The hyper-connected internet world has made it easier for people who are looking to acquire free or cheap animals to sell, abuse, and fight, for game hunters to organize, and for videos depicting animal abuse to be shared. But it's essential to reflect on how much has been gained throughout the centuries. Animals now have their place, not only in our homes, hearts, and families, but continue to gain protection and rights in the legal system. Nonprofit animal welfare and animal rights groups have proliferated, from barebones locally acting ones to national and international complex corporate organizations. The Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act are cornerstones and provide broad protections, although not nearly broad enough, for innumerable animals. Private ownership of exotic animals is restricted, And more and more cities have banned traveling circuses which use animals. Courses in animal law have become commonplace in law schools. I can go on. Cruelty-free cosmetics are highly sought by consumers and will soon be the standard worldwide. Research methods which avoid the use and abuse of animals are coming online and becoming increasingly accepted as better and less expensive. The explosion of tasty and healthful plant-based food items, both in the market and in restaurants, is huge and permits anyone to easily begin eating fewer animal products. The dog and cat overpopulation problem, with its attendant euthanasia of unwanted animals, is almost licked. Most dog racing tracks have closed. The cruelty of horse racing has finally been exposed. And many more. Listeners know there's still so much work to do, but now is a perfect time to get involved and take action, or at least to do a little more than you're already doing. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, this is Dr. Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long muscular tail like a rudder and a stabilizer, permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. Unfortunately, they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back to the show. You know, the other day was World Rabies Day, and Peter and I were talking about this, and we realized there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds? About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So, like I said, the other day, September 28th, was World Rabies Day. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert.
1: Hi, Lori. Nice to be back.
0: Rob, okay, we know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus.
1: Well, as you probably know, um, rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes, and it's a, it's a disease that that's still strong after all that time. Um, it can affect any mammal, um, of course, even people. Um, it's transmitted through bite wounds primarily, it's passed in the saliva, and it's prevalent in our environment, in in wildlife, and as you've touched on, in California, the the main carriers are bats. Um, We don't see it, fortunately, in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs. So we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter Uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal and even more rare in people but it hasn't gone away after thousands of years. It's still there, it's still a risk and efforts to control it still continue and should.
0: And the untreated disease is pretty gruesome isn't it?
1: It is. It's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well. It causes progressive neurologic
0: disease. Typically, Robert, you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take?
1: Well, Fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, Every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And in fact, I think it's important if a person is bitten by a wild animal, or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it uh, to contact animal control and and they have mechanisms in place to address that concern.
0: Does it help to capture the animal if you can?
1: It definitely does. Uh, Of course anyone who does that should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, and of course, a, pet ha- a pet's vaccination status has a, a large impact on how that situation would be handled.
0: So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called a post-exposure prophylaxis. It, how bad is that?
1: Well, post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we were worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's that's applicable nowadays. The injections they're given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful, they cause a lot of soreness and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could and they are expensive, Uh, but of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure is gonna lead to rabies or of course getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison.
0: Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in U.S.?
1: Well, it's not very common, and I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and and it is pop-up every now and then in a bat, Uh, but we haven't had a a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time.
0: Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are, are pretty harsh, huh?
1: Essentially, you know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with, with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation and the type of quarantine And whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, uh, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats. Even though the state of California does not require it in cats, it is required in dogs, currently is not required in cats, it's still recommended.
0: So, Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe?
1: It is a safe uh, vaccination. You know, we we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats uh, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do, and in the past have had. Some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs, so the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don 't present any great any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low and um, and I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control related problems uh, especially through exposure to wildlife um, outweigh the risks of the vaccine.
0: And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs?
1: To dogs in California it's every three years that's a regulation. Uh, The vaccine may have protection beyond that but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs after the age of 12 weeks and then that is repeated one year later and then it's every three years in cats it depends on which vaccine you use there are one year and three year vaccinations against rabies for cats
0: very good dr robert reed thank you so much you're welcome more with animals today right after the break thank you for listening to animals today your home for serious talk about animals now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts animals today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show that's aianimals.org and thank you for your interest and your support
2: Brushies are the new shape of clean. With redesigned grooves and ridges, these daily dental treats for dogs help remove plaque and tartar like never before. They're all natural, gluten-free, vegetarian, and engineered for the ways dogs grip and chew to give your dog fresher breath and cleaner teeth. Recent scientific studies show that Whimsies are 80% more effective in reducing plaque than leading competitors and have a three times longer chewing time for three times more fun. Using limited all-natural ingredients, Whimsies provides triple care dental health by reducing tartar, plaque, and bad breath. I want to welcome back to Animals Today, Professor Clive Wynn. He is at the psychology department, specifically the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University. And at long last, his new book has arrived. Its title is Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Welcome Clive and congratulations.
3: Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you.
2: This book reads like a personal journey. Why did you write this book?
3: well because i'd had this i'd had this personal journey that that connected with a scientific journey that uh that i really wanted to share with people because i think it changes it changes how we understand our dogs that that those are the fundamental reason yeah
2: okay so explain the title of the book dog is love
3: well so it's a it's a gentle play on the on the biblical phrase god is love of course. Uh, And what I'm saying is that I think that the ultimate essence of dogs, what made them so successful over thousands of years in human society is their capacity, this amazing open-ended capacity to form strong emotional bonds with members of other species. Obviously, for us, it's particularly that they love us. But it's, I like, as I say in the book, it's, it's not about us. It's about them. They have an amazing capacity to reach out across species boundaries and form loving relationships. And that is the ultimate secret of their success.
2: So what contributes to this capacity?
3: Well, so we can see it. All of us who live with dogs can see this on, on an everyday level. I mean, when you come home from work and your dog is the one who rushes up to the door to greet you, you know, your spouse, your children, the cat, <laughs> they can, they can all wait for you to come to them. But your dog, your dog has to be the first one to greet you. So so we see it at at everyday experiences. My students and I, we're behavioral scientists. We take everyday experiences and we build them out a little bit into slightly more formal kinds of tests. And then other scientists around the world go inside the body of the dog and they find evidence of how dogs care for people at the level of the dog's hormones, at the level of brain activity, and some research that I've collaborated in myself where we go all the way down to the deepest possible level of biological organization. We get all the way into the genetic code, that most fundamental set of instructions for living things. And we find that there are genes that have mutated in the history of the dog that make them exceptionally, we say, you know, in our scientific writing, we, use, we don't use the L word in our scientific writing. We have lots of longer words that amount to the same thing. We say hypersociability and extreme gregariousness and so on. But ultimately we found genes for love in our, in our dog's bodies. So at every, every level of analysis, the signal shines through. You know, as
2: I was uh, reading your book, I was reflecting upon the behavior of one of my dogs, and she is about three years old, and we take her on a walk in the neighborhood, and she just wants to go up and say hi to everyone. Lay down in the ground until an encounter happens with a complete stranger. What's going on there?
3: Well, so our, our dog, well, I mean, the first thing is you have an absolutely lovely dog. My dog also would love to say hello to everybody when we're walking. But around here, at least, it's, it's a little sad like that. The people, I don't know whether there was once an evil dog who looked like her in our neighborhood, but people tend to stay away from her, which I, which I know hurts her feelings. But anyway, so what's going on is that sometime in the last 15 to 20,000 years, when certain wolves set out on a strange but ultimately very successful journey to become dogs, uh, mutations occurred along the way that made dogs ever more loving beings. And what we identified in, in the research I was involved in is that mutations have taken place in three genes. When we look at the the genes of the wolf, and we look at the genes of the dog, and we look at the behavior of wolves and the behavior of dogs, we can identify three genes that are responsible for this super-friendly pattern of behavior. And what's amazing is that there is a very rare syndrome that occasionally comes up in human beings called Williams syndrome, and it involves mutations, among other things, in these same three genes. And people with Williams syndrome like our dogs, are super friendly and want to get to know everybody. And there's a video on YouTube of children with Williams syndrome, and it's rather shocking. It's rather shocking. They behave rather like videos on YouTube of people pretending to be dogs. It's really an amazing thing. What
2: have we learned studying street dogs around the world?
3: Well, so, Peter, one thing to keep in mind is that there might be a billion dogs on the surface of this planet. Obviously, it's a very rough guess. Let's say there are a billion. We live with pets, but the majority of dogs do not live as pets. The majority of dogs think about the, the less wealthy corners of the world, South America, Africa, East Asia, uh, the the old Soviet empire. And so I talk about a few places where I've seen street dogs and other places where street dogs have been studied even though I haven't seen them for myself. And what's really interesting is here are dogs who are often spurned by people. Right? I mean, in India, there are tens of thousands of people die from rabies every year. So the people of India are naturally and understandably quite cautious around the dogs out on their streets. Uh, and yet those dogs still seek out positive emotional relationships with people. And and yeah, I've seen that in the Bahamas. I've seen that in Moscow, which is an amazing place to see street dogs. And I write about what I have not yet seen for myself, street dogs in India, where some scientists carried out a super simple but very interesting study where they just petted some street dogs once a day for a few days. And at the end of that time, very brief petting, The dogs reacted to these people like they were like they were real friends, like they were seeking an emotional connection to these people. So dogs are programmed to seek out emotional connections, even if they live under conditions that are that are relatively harsh, certainly compared to our coddled pets in our homes.
2: Another area you touch upon, which I think most of our listeners are familiar with a little bit, is the oxytocin hormone. Uh, What's new and interesting in oxytocin in this world?
0: Well,
3: right. So uh, what I talk about in the book Dog is Love is how the signal that dogs love us, shines through at every level of analysis. And so I just mentioned the genes, the program for love. I've talked about very simple behavioral studies where we can see how our dogs care about us. But one very interesting set of experiments was carried out in Japan by a group who can do behavioral work, but they also have the facilities to analyze the levels of this hormone oxytocin, which gets called the love hormone because when mothers and their infants and people who are newly in love with each other look at each other, you see these elevations in levels of oxytocin. And what they did out there in Tokyo is that they had people and their dogs come into the lab and just look at each other. And while they were looking at each other, they measured the levels of the oxytocin hormone. And what they found was that on both sides, in both the dog and the human, oxytocin levels are elevated as they look into each other's eyes. So it's a a really strong demonstration that the kind of feelings, or at least the biology of the feelings that dogs feel towards people and people towards dogs are very similar to the kinds of feelings that people experience with individuals that they love.
2: What would you say surprised you most as you were conducting your research?
3: Oh, Peter, that's such a tough question. There's so many fascinating surprises along the way. It's been a heck of a journey. Um, I mean, in many ways, the genetics that I told you about surprised me the most because usually behavior is controlled by so many genes interacting together that it can be really difficult to identify a handful of genes that have a major impact. I really wasn't expecting that part of the story to come out as neatly and cleanly as it has. The behavioral stuff, I mean, here's an experiment I did not do myself, but which anybody could easily do. Just sit down on a sofa and pretend to cry. And your dog will run up. Your dog will run up and try and see what the problem is. Your dog will show all sorts of signs of concern. That's a sort of an everyday experience, but it's really powerful. It's a really powerful demonstration of how much your dog cares about you.
2: You know, I remember reading research about uh, tail wagging and the directions that the tail wags as meaning something. And I just found it almost unbelievable. And you cited, is this real? Can you briefly explain what that is and whether you believe it?
3: So, sure. So, researchers in Italy trained dogs to stand in in a fairly small box so the dog couldn't move around much. And they showed the dog different things. They showed the dog Uh, They're they're human, a cat, uh, another dog, a few different things. And they had high-speed photography so that they could clearly see whether the tail was wagging straight down the midline of the dog or somewhat to the left or somewhat to the right. And I'm afraid I forget which way round it went now, Peter. But the dogs tended to wag more on one side when they saw things they liked and more to the opposite side when they saw things that they were less keen on or were anxious about. I do believe it because I I know the research group. They're a very reputable research group. That said, I've never been able to put this to any practical use because although I've stared at my dog as she wags her tail so many times, she's never standing sufficiently still that I could really say with confidence whether her tail's wagging left or right. Its, Its significance is that it tells us, that the dog's brain is set up somewhat asymmetrically so that one side of the brain is probably processing more kind of happy news and the other side might be processing more kind of unhappy news. That's what that probably indicates. And as I say, I believe it, even though it's not the kind of thing. It's not like the little crying experiment I described. It's not the kind of thing that one can easily see outside the laboratory. Just because dogs don't keep their hindquarters sufficiently still in normal normal usage that you can see which way the tail is wagging.
2: The book is Dog is Love. We've been speaking with author Clive Wynn. Uh, Clive, what would you like readers to get out of this? I can't imagine someone who uh, likes dogs or loves dogs are not enjoying this book. What do you think they'll get out of it?
3: Well, thank you, Peter. One one thing is that I think it will open people's eyes. If, If anybody had any residual skepticism about how their dog really feels about them. You know, my mother always used to say it's just covered love. The dog doesn't really love us. She just loves the food we give her. Well, there are studies that show dogs would rather have their people than their food if they're forced to choice to choose. But um, the final chapter of the book is called Dogs Deserve Better. And there I outline some of the implications of recognizing how dogs really are. And just one thing I'll mention, that I think too many people leave their dogs alone too much of the day. We love these animals for their highly social nature. We owe it to them to reciprocate their loving, sociable nature. And I think it's harsh to leave a dog home alone for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Now, I know not everybody has the luxury that I do of working from home or nipping home when I feel like it, flexible schedule. I know I'm very lucky. But we can all, when we're thinking of acquiring a dog, think about whether our lives really have a dog-shaped space in them. And if you are forced to be out for extended hours, well, as you were saying, Peter, dogs make friends with so many people so easily. Bring somebody else in to help you, a dog walker, a dog sitter, a neighbor, a friend, a doggy daycare. Uh, There are ways of working around this problem.
2: The book is Dog is Love by Clive Wynne, spelled W-Y-N-N-E. Thanks, Clive.
3: Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure talking with you.
0: Back to the show. Peter, you know the phrase crazy cat lady, right? Yep, yep. It's been a commonly used stereotype or metaphor, whatever you want to call it, referring to a woman, perhaps an older woman, who lives a rather isolated or semi secluded life, maybe not married, maybe a bit eccentric, maybe has some mental issues, but has all her cats for companionship. Is that a good description of the stereotypic phrase? Crazy cat lady? I think so. That's, there's a profile to that. Well, a recent study pretty much debunks this stereotype. The study published in the journal Royal Society Open Science suggests that people who own cats are no more likely to experience mental or social problems than those with dogs or no pets at all. And cat owners have the same levels of loneliness, depression, and anxiety as everyone else. The study said, quote, we found no evidence to support the cat lady stereotype. Cat owners did not differ from others on self-reported symptoms of depression, anxiety, or their experiences in close relationships. Our findings, therefore, do not fit with the notion of cat owners as more depressed, anxious, or alone. This conclusion backs a similar finding by researchers at the University College London in 2017, which found no link between cat ownership and the development of psychotic symptoms. Okay, so before I go on to a couple additional findings from the study, let's talk about the stereotype crazy cat lady and the study debunking that myth. First off, do you believe the stereotype exists.
2: Yeah, I think it's a real thing. I don't know if it's a stereotype. I think there are people who are like that and you can say you're you're one of them. But do
0: you believe that women who live alone with a dozen cats are mentally unstable? Oh, not necessarily. Okay. But not something that you could
2: capture in, you know, those standard psychological uh, measures. I think they're a little off, but maybe not, you know, mentally ill. So you think there's something there? Something. Yes. A woman with
0: six cats, yeah, eight I
2: cats? I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I know. But I know what you're saying, Lori, so I'm just going to offer an off-the-cuff sort of range. That uh, if you've got three uh, four cats, you can definitely be okay. But once you get into uh, six to seven to eight, that's transition zone. And more than eight, it's uh, highly worrisome. How's that? For the Spiegel range of uh, propensity to be a little off.
0: So you're saying there's a spectrum. No, there's there's a risk profile. A risk profile, and there's a threshold. Yes. At which you fall onto this risk. Well, you don't prof- fall. Well, it's gradual. It's gradual. Okay. Yes,
2: it's a risk factor. More cats. It's a correlation.
0: Okay. It's like an R value. I remember R value. <laughs> So you're saying the number of cats owned is one of several factors. Right. That
2: you might be a crazy cat lady. And I think it's the most important one. So if you've got a lot of cats, then chances are higher that you're going to fit the rest of the profile being older woman who's maybe a little eccentric than if you have, you know, two or three cats. I mean, you, crazy cat ladies don't have two or three cats, right? They have many more.
0: Do you think that crazy cat lady you're speaking of starts out slightly anxious or depressed or neurotic, and with each additional cat, she becomes a little more kooky?
2: Oh, that's so good. You're thinking like an experimental psychologist now. (laughs) This is so good. Um, I know UCLA was involved in this research also, so be assured that our tax dollars helped fund this research. (laughs) So we should all feel good about that.
0: (laughs) Do you believe that the more feline friends you have, the crazier you are, until when? Until when? until you become classified as a psychopath or hoarder
2: well you know hoarding is a thing and it starts probably small and gets out of control psychopath I don't think we can go there that's okay but there's some propensity and what the underlying things are have to be you know who knows what what leads to it you know
0: Okay. Well, you're leaving it sort of vague as to what you believe someone crosses the line from being normal to psychopathic. But anyway.
2: Psychopathic. (laughs) You keep on going there.
0: Now, let's say in addition to those 20 cats a person has, let's say 10 cats, there are two dogs in the house. Hmm. Does that make it a pathological situation? Or by having two dogs, it protects you from landing on that spectrum of craziness? Oh, that's good. Like a a buffer,
2: a moderating factor. Yeah. Dogs bring you back to reality a little bit. Exactly. Okay. I would say that's probably a real thing. Really? Worth studying, worth tax dollars
0: funded (laughs) research. Let's go for it. Now we keep referring to this person as a lady. Do you think men without a spouse or partner and who have many cats exist? I mean, say you move into a new neighborhood and someone tells you that you have a reclusive neighbor who lives with several cats Would you just automatically assume that person is a female? Yes. Yes? Yes.
2: I know, maybe I...
0: Maybe you're sexist? (laughs) I wonder how crazy cat lady stereotype got started. Anyway, here are some additional findings from the study. Pet owners, those who have dogs or cats, were found to be more sensitive and had a strong negative reaction, like sadness, to sounds of distress from any cat or dog, not just their own. And even though cat people are not more emotional than others, cat owners were particularly attuned to sad meows. And listen to this, whines and whimpers from dogs in distress were almost as upsetting to everyone as cries from human babies. In fact, the dog whimper or whine was rated the most distressing or upsetting to everyone. So in terms of evoking distress among people surveyed, a crying dog was found to be pretty much identical to a crying baby. And this includes even those individuals who don't own any pets. But what was interesting is that most of the people included in the survey were not parents, meaning to human children, which suggests that they had developed this sensitivity to pets' needs. And also this led the researchers to believe dogs have evolved to get our attention because they depend on us for survival. One of the researchers said they, meaning dogs, have a really evocative signal, and that makes sense. Cats will be okay without humans, but domesticated dogs absolutely rely on us for everything. They need us for survival.
2: So the uh, co-evolution of dogs and people uh, led the dogs to sort of create the sound that's particularly evocative.
0: And you know, Peter, I get this, this developing a sensitivity to the needs of our pets. You know, one of our cats, Margarita, is around 19 years old and has kidney disease, and Peter gives her subcutaneous fluids every other day. And even though you don't physically hurt Margarita when you do this, she absolutely hates it. And she lets out this horrible, distressing meow, and that meow just stresses me out so much. Yeah, I know. I wish she wouldn't do that, but uh, it's for her own good. I know. You're really helping her out there and keeping her very happy and... Hydrated hydrated, exactly. So what's more distressing to you, the sound of a crying baby or a crying dog? If there's a crying
2: baby, I just don't hang out wherever that baby is, so I don't don't know.
0: Many of our listeners know Peter is a pediatric ophthalmologist, and I'm an ophthalmologist for human adults. And we tried very hard to schedule the babies Peter would examine on days when I would not be in the office, because babies don't like drops being put in their eyes, and they don't like having big bad doctors with white coats shining bright lights in their eyes be screaming and bawling their poor little eyes out and this is extremely distressing not only to me but to my adult patients who don't want to hear a baby screaming in the next exam room over
2: all true all true
0: but i have to say as distressing as it is to hear these babies cry hearing a dog cry or whimper is far more distressing to me
2: and that doesn't surprise me one bit (laughs) laurie
0: Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.